Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. Today, we welcome back Elaine Miller-Karras, the co-founder and former executive director of the Trauma Resource Institute, which is a nonprofit dedicated to promoting resilience and trauma-informed care. Under her guidance, the Trauma Resource Institute has pioneered groundbreaking initiatives such as the Community Resiliency Model and the Trauma Resiliency Model, both of which have become widely acknowledged interventions for addressing and preventing traumatic stress. She's also led projects to help communities in the recovering process after mass shootings. So uh, quite relevant for us here in Maine today and uh, still relevant all over the world. Elaine Milakaris also shares her experiences and insights in her writings as a regular contributor to Psychology Today and as the host of the weekly radio show, Resiliency Within, which is heard on Voice America. She is the author of Building Resilience to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. It's a work commended by the United Nations and other organizations all over the world. Her expertise has also garnered international recognition at numerous prestigious institutions, including the Centers for Disease Control, the United Nations, the Global Fund, Catalyst 2030, and Skoll World Forum. Notably, Right now, she's leading the Ukraine Humanitarian Resiliency Program, which provides support to teachers and children amidst that, that country's conflicts. So welcome back to Healthy Options today, Elaine Miller-Karras. Once again, thank you. And it's so good to be able to talk to you at, this, uh, at these uh, traumatic times. Well, Rhonda, I'm so um, grateful that you, you know, reached out to me and that I can be here. And if there's any way that I can um, support in even just even the smallest of ways, the, the citizens of Maine right now, I know that there is a lot of suffering happening and a lot of grieving. Yes, I was going to say, here we are again. Um, over the years, we've had to do this a number of times. So where, where, do, where do we begin? I, we can talk about what the Trauma Resource Institute is, about the models, and uh, but actually, you know, what, what skills are, re- are required now from a, a whole different points of view, from people, if, if you're in Lewiston now, uh, you know, and, and uh, directly affected in that manner, and, and the rest of us who may not be there, but uh, are affected as well. Well, let me start out by saying this, that, you know, we have some abysmal statistics in the United States. The leading cause of death for children is, is gun violence. Um, it used to be car accidents, but what did we do? We everybody gets gets a seatbelt now. Many lo- many states have passed laws requiring children to be um, seatbelted. But you know the whole area of um, gun legislation always comes up, and then you have people on both sides. One saying, "Oh, it's about guns." No, it's about mental mental illness. Well, I think it's about both. It can be about both, and I think if we try to parcel out that it's one or the other. Um, I don't think we are going to be as successful as a society to help mitigate and maybe prevent this from ever happening again. So I think, but for, for the human suffering is great. And I, and I noticed that um, one of the legislators who was against um, legislation has changed his mind. Yes. And sometimes it's seeing up close and personal, the effects of when some 18 people I believe have died and yes. another and others have been have been greatly wounded 
So that's certainly going to change the trajectory of those people's lives. But I think the other thing I've learned is that even though you may not live that close to Lewiston, you're still impacted. I'm impacted across the country. I live in California. And so all these shootings are impacting us and how we even go about our day, whether or not, well, should we go to this celebration or should we stay home? Could there be someone there that should I be hypervigilant and look around and see if I see anyone I should be frightened of? I talk to so many parents, so many um, adults that their lives are changed because of what's happening in the United States. So right now in your, in your state of Maine, people's lives have been forever changed. And so the things that I think are well, some of the most important things that I've learned is that there are many ways to help. And there are many, and sometimes in the beginning, it's too much too fast. Everyone, everyone wants to provide support. And so people need space and time to grieve the, the family members that have died, to grieve the, the change of feeling safer in your community. Because you may never feel the same going to that bowling alley again. You'll never feel the same going to that restaurant. And here you have a small community, probably many people know each other, and probably many people know of someone who was either injured or killed. So that actually adds to the kind of concentric circles of grieving that can happen. So um, so the first thing I want to say is that trauma happens in the body. And that many times, um, many of the modalities that people le- uh, learn, mental health therapists, they learn to say, okay, tell me what happened. And they want to help with the telling of the story. Um, or they'll say, tell me how you feel about the story. Probably one of the most thing, the, the most important things I've learned, and I've been to so many mass shootings and these horrible events across the globe, is that not everybody wants to tell their story. Sometimes they'd say, I don't, no, not yet. Or I've told it so many times. So now I say, when I first see someone who's suffering, um, you can tell me as little or as much as you want about what happened. But before we go there, can you tell me, is, is there anything, if anything, or a person who's helping you get through right now? Or what is helping you get through right now? The answer to that question has been so plentiful all over the globe. Oh, it's my best friend. Oh, it's my faith. Oh, you know, my dog came and sat on my lap and I just petted my my dog and I could feel my my body and my whole um, uh, calm down, my breathing calm down. So sometimes it's these little things that can help to bring us back into a greater state of balance. And that doesn't mean um, that we don't suffer, that we don't still feel pain. But what happens after these events is sometimes we can get stuck in the suffering and the pain and not shift out of realizing, and I often say this, what else can be true, even with the great suffering that's happening in Maine right now? Oh, my neighbors came over and they brought me food. Or um, we went to church or we went to temple and we were able to be as a community gathered in um, in unison and in our common humanity in offering um solace to those who are suffering. You see, these are all things we do as human beings. And so I just, I think it's important to know that sometimes it's the little things. And also sometimes there's not one thing we can do to make people feel better. And sometimes just our presence saying, you want to go for a walk together? You know, you're, you live in a beautiful part of the world. I've been there in the fall and I'm oh my gosh, your fall colors 
sometimes holding someone's hand and say, let's go for a walk in the, in the neighborhood. Oh my gosh, look at the fall colors. You know, oh, there's a certain smell of autumn, isn't there? You know, those kinds of things that can be nourishing to us, that can give us what I often call it, like it's like a resiliency pause or a wellness pause that gives us a break from the great suffering that may be around us. And because I have been working in Ukraine very extensively on Zoom, you know, it's just amazing how we can offer these things through these um, digital platforms. Many people have told me, you know, I can hear the bombs falling, but then I can also remember what else is true. They tell me this all the time. I mean, I'm just so touched by them because I don't know if I could be so courageous for myself as I've seen them be. And I guess I'm saying that maybe it is something that is so inherent in human beings, as much as we suffer, we're also wired for well-being, which I think kind of gets you in the trajectory of the our, our community resiliency model skills that I'd love to share with you. But maybe before I do that, there might be a comment or a question you have for me, Rhonda. I know I've been, I've been talking a lot, so. Oh, uh, uh, absolutely, uh, uh, Elaine. The, the microphone is yours. You know, let's, this is so valuable. And I think... It, I, I do want to go back to one of the things, uh, many of the things you said, just to reiterate that that sense that even when difficult things are happening, it's really okay to also see something else, or even one thing. There was a flower. There okay, was even one thing exactly. And and but are we wired, or is it conditioned to say, well, this is so terrible, we can't look at anything joyful, we can't think of anything. Because well, some I, of guilt or something, or right. other people are suffering. How can I think of a, a pleasant thing? Well, I think that that those thoughts happen, and I've heard those thoughts all over the world. So I think there's a couple things. I think first of all, that it's okay still to be. A, it's okay, in my perspective, that we can acknowledge the suffering. Like I said before, we can embrace our friends in in loving compassion and empathy because if they've lost someone dear to them. And then we can also say, oh my gosh, but my my three-year-old daughter had a birthday party planned. Should I cancel it? I would say, no, go ahead and continue to live life. And also for children, it's important that they still have play dates, that they can go to the playground, that you do things that nourish them. Yes, they also can suffer if the kids were there at that, at the bowling alley or in the um in the restaurant. But you want to do as much as possible, keep your kids routines and also leave it open to them that if they want to talk to you, that they can talk to you, but also that you can explain to them, you know, you're safer now, you know, the person's not going to hurt us anymore, that you may need to say that over and over again, because children, even if you've decided, oh, it's blackout on our television. When they go into school, I don't know if the schools are back in, in, in play yet. I believe they um, are. Are they? Yeah. Is that kids hear things on the playground. So it's really important for parents to keep that dialogue open with their kids. Um, because if they don't, sometimes kids put their own frame about what has happened. And that's what lives in them. Not necessarily what you've protected them from. Or if you think if you don't talk to them about it, that they're not going to suffer. So in very simple ways, you can let them know that they're safer because off, you know, it's about safety, but you said something that was important. And that is, I think that as human beings, we are hardwired to survive. So we have this part of our brain called the amygdala that is hardwired to remember the terrible things that have happened to us. So if we're ever in a situation again, 
that that amygdala will kind of sound the alarm and say, oh, if you hear gunshots, you need to run to safety, right? But what happens if you hear a loud sound like 4th of July, or if you hear, um, if you're, you know, just walking down the street of Lewiston and all of a sudden a car has a backfire, then that thing can send you as if that trauma is happening in the present moment. And that's what I've learned is very important. There's something that's called interceptive awareness. We call it very simply in our community resiliency model, we call it reading the nervous system, tracking what's happening on the inside. And everybody that's listening already does that. I've been in Maine when it's been really cold and I live in California. So if I didn't bring a coat and I go outside in Maine, I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm in a t-shirt. So my body's reading my nervous system saying, temperature cold, uncomfortable, go inside, put your coat on, Elaine. Then all of a sudden I have a warm coat. I, I, and all of a sudden my body goes into balance. I'm feeling better. So I want you all to know you already do this. But with the trauma that happened in Maine is that if you were even close to hearing those gunshots, that kind of um, trigger can happen to you when you're just in the supermarket and all of a sudden you're terrified or your child's clutching onto you and maybe because they were there and you're going, what's going on? So I want everybody to know that we're hardwired for that amygdala to remember. But if that happens all the time, it can take us out of our lane of feeling like we can function as a human being. And that's what post-traumatic stress is all about, right? Mm -hmm. And so what have we learned about post-traumatic stress with the model that, that I've helped to create is that when something like this happens, the nervous system goes into hyperarousal, which sure. makes sense, right? Because you were in danger. For most people, they go back down into a, this kind of balanced state where the nervous system comes back into balance. But for some of us, that doesn't happen. So it's like we're on, um, it's like you put the foot on the accelerator of your nervous system and you don't know that there's a break and you're just feeling jacked up all the time. So you have to learn that there's a break. So some of the things I talked about earlier are the break, going for that walk with a friend and being able to read your nervous system when it gets jumbled up and saying, oh, I don't feel right. I got a knot in my stomach, my got tension. I feel heat in my face. And then you say, okay, what kinds of things may help my nervous system? Going for a walk, Can We have these help now strategies going for a walk, looking at the colors outside. It can be as simple as having a glass of water. Um, there are help now strategies that can be very helpful. And um, I'm going to give you some information that you can put on your website where people can learn the skills and actually hear us doing an hour and a half presentation that's completely free. It's on Medscape, the community resiliency model. But the other thing, and right now, if you're if this is resonating with you when I'm talking, you can learn the skills of the community resiliency model, which is essentially the skills to help you learn how to put the brake on your nervous system. So if all of a sudden you're jacked up and you're feeling stressed about what happened, you can listen to what the community resiliency model is, the key concepts. And we have the tracking, the grounding, developing resources, the help now strategies all laid out there. So you can listen to it or you can read it. So it's called I Chill completely free. We now have it in three languages, Rhonda, English, Spanish, and because of our Ukrainian project in Ukrainian. So, I mean, and there's going to be more in the future. We're actually working on expanding the platform. 
But I oh. think that any any way that you can help that nervous system come back into balance is going to be really important for you right now because of what happened. Go ahead, Rhonda. Sorry yeah. to. So yo, this is this is great. Um, yeah, uh, we were listening to the iChill app before we got on, so we can perhaps practice some of those. Do it. We, we could sure do a little can. modeling. But if you have just tuned in, um, you are listening to the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest today is Elaine Milikaris, author, radio show host, show, social worker, trauma therapist, and co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute. And we're learning about uh, how to balance our nervous systems after the kinds of trauma uh, that, that we've all experienced in the world. And if you're in Maine, uh, very locally, <laughs> and we could name how many places if you're listening from any state practically in, in, in the world, in our, uh, our the United States, uh, you'll have a, have a, this will resonate in some manner. So the other thing I wanted to ask, and some people have asked me, is there like a hierarchy of trauma? Yes, Lewiston is one thing, but, you know, I get really nervous when... I have to do something that's uncomfortable. How can I even begin to think that that's trauma when I'm lucky enough not to be in, you know, the Middle East right now or in the Ukraine? Right. So just to, to clarify that for, for some people about. Well, one of the, the things I've system. learned is not to compare traumas. So what might be very traumatic to you, Rhonda, wouldn't be traumatic to me that we know our perception of something being traumatic is what can dysregulate the nervous system. And we see this with children where they, you know, you have five kids experiencing the same event. You know, the four of them might think, oh, I just thought we were having like fun. And the, and the fifth one's going, I was terrified. I thought I was going to die. And I think a lot of it has to do with there is an existential threat. And if there is an existential threat, and it can be something small for some people and something really big, of course, like, what's happening in the Middle East right now, what's ha what happened in Lewiston, those are really what we call big T traumas, right? But I have also learned that whether it's big T or a little T trauma, and a little T trauma doesn't mean the nervous system hasn't experienced it as a big T trauma. For example, I had a terrible dentist when I was a kid. It terrified me to go into the dental, dental office because it was kind of existential for me. He was scary and mean. And as a little kid, that made me not go to the dentist as an adult. Well, I have a lot of crowns right now, right? So, and I'm not, and that's not to, I don't want anyone to think I'm minimizing these horrible events that happened in Maine or what's oh. happening in the Middle East or in Ukraine right now. But I think what I have learned is that our nervous system is, is wired, like I said, to remember the difficult things and sometimes the existential things where we've perceived a threat. And whether we live in Maine or in California or in Ukraine or Palestine or Israel right now, is that we all have nervous systems that are designed the same way. So when we experience distress, there's something that happens to what's called our sympathetic nervous system, where we can go into what's called a hyper-aroused state. Heart rate starts to beat faster, tension in our body, um, our, uh, our breathing becomes faster and more rapid, heart rate more rapid. So that, if we get stuck like that, we call it the high zone, that's a very uncomfortable place to be. And that can happen to us with small stresses and also be like me going to the dentist and being involved in the aftermath of a shooting that can all obviously be more serious. But what we can do in either case, we can learn skill number one, which is reading the nervous system that I've already mentioned. So how you can learn 
to read your nervous system to know when you're in that state. So if I'm like, for example, when I get into my high zone, my ears get really hot. I can feel tension in my body. That's my signal. Then I can plug in one of my skills. So one of my skills is, is called, I'm reading the nervous system, number one, tracking. But one of my skills is grounding. I ground with my right hand. I'm on um, Zoom calls a lot. And sometimes I'm talking to someone and I'm getting distressed by what they're talking about. And I need to stay within my balance state, which we call the okay zone or the resilient zone. I'll just put my hand on the table. And I did it just, I'm doing it right now. My table is cold. It's hard. And I can feel myself sitting in my chair. I'm in the present moment, but I do it through my right hand. Some people do it through their feet. You can feel your seat in the seat of your chair. Some people don't like to sit at all. They want to stand up against the wall so they can see the exits. But grounding becomes very important to stay in that present moment. Because if you're in that present moment, you're not thinking about what's happening out there or what's happened in the past. Um, you're thinking about what's just happening now and what can I do now if I know that threat of the shooter, we know he's dead. And so if my nervous system is jacked up, I can do what I can to see if I can bring my nervous system back into balance. So you can do that first tracking, then grounding. But the, the other skill, that the best way to learn how to track is through identifying your personal resources. And so personal resources can be real or imagined. They can be walking in nature in Maine. They can be your best friend. They can be, I have a friend that like loves George Clooney, even though he's, and she goes, I know he's married, but I love him anyway. Can't believe he married that girl. <laughs> right? I mean, she's kind of funny when she says it, right? I love Barbara Streisand. Not everybody likes Barbara Streisand, but I love hearing her voice, her singing. And so I can call those, one of those things up. And when I do that, and like I saw Barbara at the Hollywood Ball. I can think of her, see her. I love her voice. If you could see me now, I am taking a deep breath. I can feel all my muscles in my body relax. Mm. Now you think, God, that's so simple. Really? You can just do it such a simple thing? Yes. So if we cultivate those resources and we track what we notice inside, when our nervous system comes back into balance, it's been explained to me by people much smarter than me, neuroscientists, to say, Elaine, it's like, if you think about your hands coming together and your hand, your fingers on your hands are moving and they're coming and they're coming and they, oh my gosh, they're meeting because you're thinking about that resource and they meet, you're creating a new neuronal pathway that's connected to your well-being. The more that you practice that, the more that it gets stronger and stronger. So then when the amygdala, let's say, reacts because um, it's heard a pop of the backfire of a car, and your nervous system gets jacked up, now you can go, oh, I can remember that walk with with, um, with Rhonda in the woods when we had that wonderful, we came that we saw that stream. You see, I'm expanding the resource. And then that can make my body even relax more. So the more that we do that, I know it sounds so simple. And so, there's, it's, but it's, it is that simple, actually, to help us connect this wonderful image with our nervous system to help bring our nervous system back into balance. So go ahead. Yeah. So the resource, much like you were saying, we're in nature. We're I'm noticing the rocks. I'm noticing the stream. I'm noticing the beautiful tree. I'm noticing where I'm sitting or I eat. And, and it may not be 
where you've been. You can create this if you have to. You can imagine it. That's right. You imagine my friend thinking she has a relationship with George Clooney and she doesn't. I mean, that's a, <laughs> she does that, not. That's kind of good a boundary. No, she does. Yeah, good boundary. I mean, that's kind of a, and I don't yes. want to trivialize these as well. But no. I think it's very important to know that as human beings, um, we are designed this way. There's a researcher, Dr. Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin. And he is, you know, he's he's researched that we have resiliency circuits, Rhonda. We have a, a circuit, a, 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 what is it, a, a generosity circuit, a resiliency circuit, an intention circuit, um, a positivity circuit. So if we start talking about those positive things in our life, that part of the brain starts to light up. It gets stronger. And, and one of the things I loved, and this is something that would be easy to implement right now in in the community in Lewistown or any part of Maine, any part of the world, is that if you notice someone being generous to someone else, or if someone is generous towards you, or if you're generous to someone else, those circuits in the brain light up, all those three different scenarios. And so think about when people lose someone and people bring chocolate chip cookies or a casserole, that's that generosity that I'm talking about, that is so wonderful for us to experience. And actually, as human beings, we're designed for our brain to respond to that in a positive way. So, you know, I, I when I first read that research, I go, oh, thank goodness. I'm going to tell everybody I, I know. No wonder why I cry at those Hallmark commercials, because I'm watching generous acts and it impacts my brain and it impacts my well-being. So it's really important as much as we're also designed to remember the negative things that we can work on developing those positive neuronal pathways. And the more that we do that, the stronger they become. And, now, and are, are we yes. tracking? Are we tracking the nervous system then as well? Because we know what it felt like. Okay, I'm I'm in trauma now. My I, my gut feels really tight, or I can't breathe. And I go to the resource, and all of a sudden, I'm I'm taking that deep breath, much like I, you talked about when you did that. Exactly, the, the taking the deep breath. And and I've seen it too when I've had to do quote rescue treatments or something in in acupuncture and in in the medicine I I practice where someone does you can feel them come back in in their body almost yes and, and there's yes. the big breath and you go okay we're on the right track but you can learn that for yourself in in a way to to say okay I've been in the I've, I've been watching the false colors or I've been petting my dog and wait a minute. I'm breathing a little bit better. Well, and Rhonda, what's so wonderful about what you're saying too, you know, when I think when I first was on your show, we didn't have any randomized controlled trials regarding the the community resiliency model, also the wellness skills of the trauma resiliency model. Now we have so much research from Emory University, Loma Linda, University of Kigali, so that we know that when people use these skills, that they have statistically significant reductions in depression, anxiety, traumatic stress and vicarious stress and improvements in factors of well-being and and also a reduction in hostility indicators. So there's a really good reason to practice these and the thing that's wonderful about it, you can integrate them into your activities of daily living. It doesn't have to be oh I have to get into a, a room where there's a candle burning and incense. You can do this I can do it at my table. The The nurses study that was done um, um, right before the pandemic found that when the nurses, there's another um, skill, well, it's tracking, 
but it's also gesturing. And gesturing has to do with paying attention to self-soothing gestures. So the nurses, some of the nurses said, oh, I realized that I, I, I just very, um, um, with my thumb and my forefinger, I stroke my scrubs. And when I do that, it calms me down. So you could, and the, and the nurses told us they could do that in the middle of a code when dealing with a difficult family or a difficult colleague. So it's not the kind of thing that you have to go someplace else. You can do it in the here and now. And does that use, and do you have a self-soothing No, I'm holding my here? chest. I was just practicing that one. I know you, this is radio, so you can't see. I'm like, practicing. what would that feel like? I'm doing, you know, my turtleneck. It's 37 degrees here now. Well, okay. That's another trauma. That. Right. So no, but that's, holding, that's holding my, holding my heart. And, and actually that's part of gesturing as well. So you can do a self-soothing gesture. Mm-hmm. And these things are not necessarily that you're, you're forcing yourself to do that. No. If you pay attention. Do you have a self-soothing gesture? Like I have one where I put one thumb on top of another and I gently stroke it. I didn't know that. And so I started paying attention to this when I would be out in the field. I go, you know, people do certain movements to calm themselves. And then I started saying, wow, this could be a skill because it's usually underneath conscious awareness. But when we bring that awareness to consciousness, like you're putting both hands on your, on your heart, that may be your self-soothing gesture. And if then you do it with intention, you can feel that immediate Mm -hmm. relaxation of your body coming back into your zone. And actually as people, like when I ask people about resources, people all over the world, you know, they say all sorts of things. But one of the things that is, is the most common is people will say their faith. So whether I'm in, let's say I was in China after the Sichuan earthquake, they'd say the teachings of Buddha and they'd put their hand to their heart you would usually have an effigy of, of a jade effigy of the Buddha around their, their, their neck. And they'd say the teachings of Buddha. And when they would do that, they would take a deep breath automatically, not because I asked them to take a breath. It happened spontaneously. Like in Haiti, after that horrible earthquake of 2010, and asking, well, what's helping you get through? The teachings of Jesus are right here. And so People will say with their faith, right, the kinds of things that help them. Or let's say someone who is from the Jewish tradition. Oh, is what I'm thinking about what helps me is we used to have the Sabbath dinner. And that was such a wonderful time to gather and be with my family. So you see what I'm saying? Those things that are of our our faith and our history often also comes with a, a sensation of putting the hand to the heart. But then I say, oh, did you notice you put your hand to your heart? They go, no. I said, well, you did that when you started talking about your faith. And that means that, you know, I, I work all over the world. So I'm, I'm not here to say any faith is better than another faith. I'm just asking and trying to be curious mm-hmm. about what right. helps people. Right. So if I, was, if I was in Lewiston right now, I would be asking that question. Is right. there anything that's helping you right. get through right now? Or if you've had other hard things that have happened to you in your life, is there anything that you can call up in the present moment that may be helpful to you now? Those right. two questions have been really, really helpful. There's a third thing too. So I've been talking about tracking, resourcing, grounding, gesturing, and the help now strategies are, I've already mentioned, but that's the, um, I think she has another comment she wants to make. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just, if you just joined us and uh, yes, we are, um, 
This is the Healthy Options Program on WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We are with Elaine Miller-Karras, co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute and the author of Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. We are going over all of the uh, all of these stages, in it were as it were the the ways that we can calm our nervous system. So we've done tracking and grounding and resourcing and some gesturing. We're talking about faith, whether it's B- Buddhist, the Jewish, it's uh, Muslim, Christian, whatever, whatever your uh, Sikh, whatever, whatever it is whatever it is that calms your nervous system and, and the gesture that goes with it. And I, I just love these things that you can do to calm yourself. Even it, it doesn't have to be a big thing. I, that's, it, it can be no. something very, very simple, but it it is an awareness. So it takes a little bit of practice at the beginning, but it, it is something that we can, we all have, we're all able to, uh, to grasp, I think. Well, I think we are because we're designed that way, Rhonda. And also, you know, I've been doing more and more research on a neuroscience co- concept. It's called introceptive awareness. That's the the ability to pay attention to sensations. That's also what tracking is all about, reading the nervous system. So what the researchers and neuroscientists are finding, people that have the ability to do that have better affect control, better impulse control. And um, just to manage their emotions better. So there's a really good reason to do this. And again, like I said earlier, you already do this, but it's, it's now bringing with intention, I often say, bringing intention with attention to those sensations of well-being that exist within you. Okay, say that again. In, <laughs> so For with me. attention, yes. So bringing your awareness with, we can actually see it either way. Bringing your awareness, right, to your sensations of well-being with intention, with attention. Intention, you're intending to do it with attending to that sensation of well-being. And I often say it's like a garden. I've seen beautiful gardens in Maine. And what would happen if you decided, I know that, you know, weeds can be medicinal, but if you were planting vegetables and flowers and you said, well, you know, this year, Rhonda, I'm only going to pour water on my weeds. What's going to happen to my fruits and vegetables? They're not going to be as hardy or my flowers are not going to be as hardy. So this is about really tending with attention Hmm. to the well-being that exists, that I have learned exists within all of us. And the more that you pay attention to that and water your well-being, guess what? Neuroscience tells us that neurons that fire together, wire together, and those pathways become stronger. So if there's a reason to do all of this right now with how much people are suffering. So let's continue. You were starting before the break to uh, uh, talk about the um, help now. Okay. So the next level. Help 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 now. That's what we hear about. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it's so funny because we, um, we've also, we've trained some people who are doing some really wonderful things to end some of the systemic problems that have happened in law enforcement um, in the state of Washington. And they said, Elaine, but we are the help. So can we name it something else? I said, well, what do you want to call it? We want to call it reset now. And I actually think that's a great term, but some people like help now. So now I say help now to reset now. And so resetting the nervous system. And I want you all to think about this. And you've already probably experienced this. I imagine you have Rhonda. 
if you're talking to someone that is really out of their zone, they have a dysregulated nervous system, and you're trying to have a conversation with them, what happens to your nervous system? Does it stay calm? Or yeah, so your nervous system is affected, right? So when you get get good at this, you'll also notice when people are not in a regulated state. And sometimes you can say the help now strategies can be done very conversationally. We've created 10, but we probably could have done 20, but we have like 10 in our recipe. And so I would say, well, Rhonda, I'm wondering, would you like a drink of water? And so I might hand you a glass of water right now. And as you were drinking the water, you can see the person come into the present moment, often taking a breath. Well, you know, I just look at these fall colors. Which ones do you like that? I really like the, I really like the rust colors. Now you're naming colors. We know that when you name colors, you're bringing an awareness to something outside of the body. It's not avoidance. It's like working with the nervous system will often go into a state of relaxation. Or I might say, what helps me when I'm really feeling stressed out? Rhonda, I sometimes have a tendency more to go into kind of like a hyper aroused state rather than the high zone, rather than the low zone. So if I'm feeling that energy in my arms and my legs, and I'm kind of getting really jacked up, I'll go and push my hands against the wall and I'll push, 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 push my hands against the wall. And I can feel that energy of that kind of anxiety, anger kind of leaving. And sometimes I don't want to push my hands. Sometimes I push my back against the wall and that has the same result. So there's 10 altogether that just giving you some ideas. Teachers tell me all over the world, they have posters of these 10 in their classrooms. And it really helps children start to learn how to read. We're calling it body literacy, learning how to read. their. So they not only become literate, they can read, they can do their mathematics, and now they're body literate. They can read their nervous system in order to be able to know what when they're in their high or low zone or their okay zone. So if they're out of their zone, there can be ways they can get back into their zone. It's pretty cool, isn't it, that, th- that we have that ability to do that? I'm just imagining how that would be as a as a, a child to learn these skills, how much suffering could be avoided and how much dysregulation and, and, and pain this could be. Well, can I tell you a little short story? Sure. Um, I was in India in 2019. I had the great honor to be asked, and I think it was 20, the end of 2017, to contribute to an idea that was inspired by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So he wanted to create a secular social emotional learning program for schools that had to do with how do we cultivate compassion and empathic ethical learning in children. He was worried about that. He really wanted that to happen in his, you know, towards the end of his life. I want to make sure it's done. So he has a very strong association with Emory University. They have a center of contemplative science there that he's very connected to. Well, I knew somebody there that had become a community resiliency model teacher. His name is Dr. Brendan Ozawa Silva. And Brendan calls me and said, Elaine, I have this project I want you to help help with, but they need to know about it. So here he was working with like Daniel Goleman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence and people that have done amazing things. And he said, this curriculum is really good, but it doesn't have anything about the body in it. Can you come to the powers to be and talk to them about, you know, the community resiliency model and the wellness skills of the trauma resilience? I said, sure. So they flew me to Atlanta. I met with these wonderful people and they asked me to be a senior consultant to this program. So I wrote chapter two, it's not called CRIM or Community Resiliency Models, chapter two. And then 
what happened, they had the launch in India. They invited me to go. It was a big honor of my life to be there. And I got to interview the children who were t- having benefits, right? Myself and another friend, Lindy uh, Sevenvendemi. And so she and I interviewed the kids and we asked them questions like, which chapter did you like the best? What do you think would um, we could improve about the um, the chapters? Can you tell us if there's a skill that you liked better than the other skills? So one little boy, you know, he said, I'd like to say, he goes, I like chapter two the best, which of course I was very <laughs> proud about. And he's, I said, well, what is it about chapter two that he liked? And then this sweet little boy said, well, he said, sometimes I get very sad and depressed. So he was able to name his emotions. And, he's, and, and he says, but you know what? I feel it in my arms. I get this heaviness in my arms. It's so heavy. He says, it becomes so heavy. I can't learn. And he says, and I know why it comes. He said, you know, one of my parents died. And then my other parent is a drug addict. And my two brothers still live in the slum in Dharmasala. And sometimes I just miss them. And I said, well, so what do you do when the sadness comes to you? He said, well, we have in our school, the help now strategies are murals all over the school. He said, because they were a pilot for the, for the C learning program. And he goes, so I go to the place and I push, push, push against the wall. And he goes, when I do that, I can feel the sadness slowly leaving my arms. It comes out through my hands. And then and the dearest thing, Ron, is he said, and the sadness leaves enough so I can go back and learn. And enough, enough, right? Enough. And enough. I think and I think that's what I really want to convey to the residents of Lewistown that have gone through this horrible thing. It's not that the sadness will lead completely of what happened. How can it? Because it's something that's such a horrible tragedy. But it can leave enough, like he said, I can go back and learn that you can be in your zone of well being and still, you know, do your job and go to the grocery store and hug and love your kids and, you know, take care of your elders, whatever it is that you do in your life. Um, that I think I've learned that people can hold both the suffering and the way to come out of the suffering. That could be having that birthday party. Like you said earlier, you know, you can feel guilty to even be happy. And then I'm saying, you know, embrace the happiness when it comes because it also can be fleeting. You can have that moment of, of happiness and then go, oh, like the little boy, the sadness of losing, you know, really both of his parents and his siblings. And then you can have this moment of feeling better. So it doesn't have to be perfect, it's, it, but it can be better than, you know, kind of being trapped by the windstorms of life that you're stuck in the sensations of despair and distress without knowing that there's another way that you can experience yourself to continue to live. I think the more that we um, learn about about this, and again, if people have just joined us, I just want to reiterate that we are, this is Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with our guest, Elaine Miller-Karras, co-founder of the Trauma Resource Institute and author of the book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resi- Resiliency Model. Um, I, I, I think that the... the, the this idea of, of enough, you know, that it doesn't have to be perfect. Doesn't it's have so, to be perfect. It's so important. And to embrace the breath, to embrace being 
being alive. That's crucial. Well, and that's why there's, you're just reminding me of something else that's been very important. Um, I will tell you another experience that, um, that I had in San Bernardino County after the terrorist attack where there were also, you know, mass shooting that many people died. And, and these were not people that were actually in the building where people were killed, but they were in a neighboring building because they went into, and I think this happened in Lewistown too, where when you have a shooting like this, the whole city goes into shutdown. And so during that time, you don't know what's happening out there. And in this case, it was the, um, the part of the County that like, um, uh, got food stamps for people, for example. And so they were, they were on lockdown and, you know, people were, they were having prayer circles in, in their space. And they later learned that one of the people in the, in the, um, in their group, the husband was killed in the terrorist attack. They didn't know it at the time. They learned it later, but she, we were talking about, you know, how to get through and asking those questions. And sometimes the question is, when did you know that you were going to survive? Or when did you know that you were going to get out, which could be if you were stuck in in lockdown and you couldn't get out, because that can feel very trapped by people who've had the experience of, um, of, you know, traumas from their past. Right. So I'll never forget this one woman. She raised her hand and she said, gosh, I'd never thought about that. But I remember the moment that I knew that I was alive and it actually, it's what helped me get, get through is that. We, I got into my car and people um, escorted us to our cars. And then I got to my car, I drove home, I walked through the front door and I just sat on the couch and I started to cry. And my husband had his arm around me, there was TV was off and my little girl came up to me and she says, mommy, are you sad? And she said, and she said, yes, I'm very sad. And she goes, mommy, I can make you feel better. And she, and she said, you can, she goes, mommy, can I sing for you? And she says, well, honey, of course you can sing for me. And she said, and she started to sing, let it go from frozen. And she <laughs> said at that moment, and, and I have to tell you, there were about 25 people in the room. We were all in a circle. We all started laughing, but then we started tearing up, yep. tearing up because of the preciousness of life and of children. And that doesn't, when that moment happened, it was so interesting to me is that people then said, oh, well, my son had a baby this weekend. Can I show the pictures of my my son, the baby? And she showed the picture of her little new baby clasping her finger. So then at that moment, that sparked us all to remember about life. I think it's okay to do that. But I'll never forget that that little sweet story. Mm. So so one of the things I think for any of you listening is also say, well, can you remember when you knew you were going to get out of the bowling alley or that you were going to get out because that moment of existential survival is very important, but there's another part of it. That's hard because there's people that didn't. And that's where people then go, well, why was I saved? And why didn't I get shot? And others did. And that can take some sorting out. So there's a recovering period. That's not going to be an easy answer right now but can, you know, really be embraced by other community members that may have similar feelings and sometimes why getting together with others because no one else knows in the same way as the people that were there that that survived. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes people come up and I want to just say to the survivors, 
oh, well, it was God's will that you survived. Like me, it was God's will that my neighbor didn't. You know, sometimes those adages, those aren't helpful. I mean, I often say, I just don't know what to say, but just know that I'm, I'm here for you. And if you need anything from me, a walk, um, a casserole, that I really am here to support you and your family. Yeah. There's so, so many levels of this. And, and I guess to feel okay with there being so many levels, the, the, the happiness, the total grief, the, now we talked about being stuck on high, but we didn't really talk about what being stuck on low looks like. Well, yeah. And stuck on low is like numb, lack of energy. Um, I don't want to get out of bed exhaustion and, and people can go between stuck on high and stuck on low. Uh, we call it the low zone, high zone. And, um, and the go, I don't even know if I have a resilient zone or okay zone right now, Elaine, people have said that to me as well. So, you know, these strategies that I've been talking to you about can help whether you're stuck in the, okay, the high zone or the low zone. I mean, it's normal for any of us. I mean, if I ask you, I can tell you, I've been in my high zone, I've been in my low zone, but it's not problematic unless we get stuck there. It's not part of the human condition, right? But, you know, right now there can be people that can be very stuck in being in one place or the other. And, and I just want to say something, you know, losing so many lives and, and using lo- young people's lives, people who lost, you know, I, I don't know the ages of everyone that died in the, but it's very hard for parents to lose their children. Um, children are not supposed to die before their parents. And I think it's particularly difficult when children die for all of us. Right. It's not an easy thing to live through or to get through. So yes, to the people of Lewiston, these are, uh, yeah. these are, these are the challenges. And for, for all of us, as you said, even the second hand, even the people not right there, but there are, there is a definitely would be a, a, a difference, you know? Right. There's a difference, but I want to say something too. I just want to do, you know, a big shout out to the first responders, people that were there that had to see um, the carnage. That is never easy because those images of horror can get stuck. Mm-hmm. And having, um, I remember after the Las Vegas shooting, uh, I worked with a group of um, sheriffs who had been used to seeing a lot, but that particular one was particularly difficult. And I remember one of them saying, I've seen a lot, but I've never seen anything like this. Um, and so I just want to say it's really important for you all to get the support in the way that you can. Um, law enforcement folks have told me that the community resiliency model skills have been really helpful because they're already like kind of tough people. They're in their body, you know? And so this is about your body. It's like you exercise a muscle um, when you're, you know, develop your, you know, your strength to be able to do the job that you do, but to know that you can also exercise your, your well-being muscle by these skills. But I remember at the end of working with these, um, with the sheriff's, and they, they were the sheriffs were there with their families, so their wives and children. And and one of them said, "You know, I felt so hopeless before we did this, but now I'm feeling a little bit more hope that there are ways that we can maybe get through this." But that was talking about how we're talking about this that we've done in this time together, the high zone, low zone, talking about the way the brain is is and our survival brain is made. That maybe you ran because the existential threat was so great. Because the other thing that often we don't talk about is that some people ran out and got into safety, 
And then they can feel bad that they didn't stay to help people who were injured. And I say, that's your survival brain that said, run like hell, because there was that great existential threat. It doesn't mean that you're not a good person or that you don't care about others, but our, we're designed for survival and that some of us will, will flee or will freeze that we can't move and go, I couldn't move. It's like I couldn't speak. And we even have colloquialisms in our, in our vocabulary, right? In the English language, scared, stiff, you know, scared. Some people get scared to death, but I think it's really important for people to know that things happen physiologically to their bodies that no one talks about that can happen, that are part of the human experience of living through that kind of devastation. So if you are in that situation, guilt or feeling bad about surviving, <laughs> right? then we go through the, if, if they came to you and if, or uh, someone who's practicing this, and there are people in Maine practicing this, um, we would do the tracking. So where's that level of sensation? We don't have to talk about the guilt. We can, don't have to talk about, yeah, yeah, that happened. Yeah. We talk about, well, let's track. Where is that living in your body? Well, my my heart hurts. I can't breathe. And then we go into what we the, the grounding. Where where are we? Right. The resourcing. Would you would you we do this? You know, well, the gesturing, you know, the help. Yeah. And, yeah. And there's another one. It's called shift and stay. That's the last skill. Yes, let's do that. That's right. And so then you'd say, let's say you felt like a tension in your chest. It's so, just so strong. Um, and you, I'd say, well, I'm just wondering, is there any place in your body that doesn't feel tension? And I'd say, just be curious. Do you feel it? How about your legs, your feet? Oh, no, my, my legs and feet are fine. Well, what would happen if you just brought your attention to your legs and your feet? If, and see, what's, see what happens. And so they would do that. And all of a sudden they're moving their legs. They go, Oh, that tension is lessened. It's like it's, it's leaving. I go, well, just notice that it's leaving right now. But I also want to say, as I'm talking about sensation, is that sometimes, um, sensing on the inside is too much for people in the aftermath. Mm. And so to know that I always say that when we bring the community resiliency model skills forward, always making an invitation. You know, I might say, well, you know, sometimes, you know, we've learned that for some people, if we can really notice if there's any sensations that feel even a little calmer or a little bit better, I know that you're feeling a lot of distress right now, but if we bring our attention to that, it tends to help regulate the entire nervous system and it may help you feel a little bit better as you negotiate that journey that is ahead of you. And so sometimes people are willing to try that, but sometimes it's too much. And if that's the case, just use, just talk to the person. Or use the paradigm of the model saying, let's go for a walk together. When we use the large muscles of the arms and the legs, it can help downregulate a hyper-aroused state or upregulate a hypo-aroused state. So some of this is just the knowledge of how we use the nervous system to help a person come back into balance. So, yeah, so it could be too much. And, and so what we would do for someone living in another state who's got re-stimulated by this may be different than what we use in Lewiston with. Well, uh, and especially for the survivors and the family members, people that were there, you know, I'm sure you have fine mental health counselors in, um, in that yes. area. I know that somebody from NAMI from your, that area reached out to me. What is that? Really, uh, the national Associ association of the mentally ill. It helps to 
bring family members and people that have a mental health condition in support. And I know they were putting together a number of resources together. So I would say, you know, reach out to, you know, your local community mental health center. If you're having a lot of struggles, you know, go see your physician, but also reach out to NAMI um, because they're an organization that they, they really focus on trying to help people who are suffering. And the other, the final thing I want to say too, there may be many families that have somebody with a mental health condition in their family in the, in Lewistown where I go, my gosh, can my kid do Lewiston rather. Can I, would, would that, um, could my kid do something like this? So I think there can be a lot of fear in people who may have a child with a mental health condition or a family member. And I think NAMI is a really wonderful organization to reach out to, to also get support. There's just so much, there's so many, so many levels to this. And you know, there are definitely people uh, who I talk to every day being not not only what's happened in Lewiston, but what's happening in the world. And people, as we can see, the violence around the violence, the the sides, the different positions. This is the truth. That's the truth. You're the enemy. I'm the enemy. And and people are living that battle even thousands of miles away. And exactly. I mean, this has been a hard three weeks in the world, hasn't it? Yes. Um, I think that there can be that on top of the suffering that happened with the shooting. And so I, I think this is a time really that if people are feeling like, oh my God, I'm worried about myself, they could also call 988. It is the helpline that's for all over the country where there is, you can text it, you can call it. Uh, I think you can email it too, but it's a crisis line where there are trained counselors on the other end. And if you need to talk to somebody right now, call 988 if you don't have a mental health provider yourself. Great. And when you pick a mental health provider, also make sure that they are experienced with trauma. There you go. Yeah, because not everybody is. Well, that's an excellent way to end this program. Of course, we could continue. And we might have to have you back because it's always so valuable and, and so important that we, we've done this. If you've just tuned in, uh, we're at the end of the show and you can listen to it again. It will be archived. Our guest on Healthy Options today has been Elaine Milikaris, co-founder and former executive director of the Trauma Resource Institute, host of the podcast Resiliency Within on Voice America, and author of Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models. Thank you again, Elaine Milikaris, for being with us today. We always appreciate your speaking with us. We're going to do all the websites, uh, traumaresourceinstitute.com. Med, Med, Medscape has the web webinar. Um, we'll have that um, listed. The iChill app will be listed, um, www traumaresourceinstitute.com. I said that and find the link to the show and other information that we mentioned on the public affairs archives right here at WERU. And um, you can also get the smartphone app and we can, um, you can listen to this as a podcast. Thanks to Joel Mann, Amy Brown of WERU for engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thank you to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.